When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the wind windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his son with them entered the ark, they and every creature according to its kind, and the Lord shut them in. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and everything and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is blood, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, 
Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is a whole bunch of God's word. All right. I just want to, yeah, I just want to acknowledge a few things. Um, Number one, that was long. I know. I just want to, you know, we see that. We know that. Uh, Number two, if uh, if you heard that your kids were welcome to go back to their seats, one of those available seats is also a room in the back of the church um, that you're welcome to send your kids back to if you'd like, but also they're welcome to stick with you and hang out with you. Um, and uh, let's see, anything else? Oh yeah, this, so far this has gone very smoothly tonight, hasn't it? I uh, just want to acknowledge that and, uh, and just say, you know, how great, right? Trust, yeah, good theme for the evening. Anyway, with all that said, I am, uh, I am really grateful to be here, and I'll just uh, conclude this uh, long preamble with these words. Now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. So today we're, we're talking about trust again. This is a series that we're in looking at some of the great people of the faith and how trust works out in their lives. And this is one of the, uh, one of the most familiar stories in the Bible that I think we often um, misunderstand or we don't get the, uh, the depths of what's going on inside of it. So I'm really looking forward to going through it with you all. Um, as I was thinking about this, I thought about a commercial that always plays when you watch the Phoenix Suns uh, on TV, on the Bally Sports Network, which uh, I apparently do from time to time. And it's, uh, it's one of the big casinos runs a commercial. And, uh, and, and there's a part of it, it says, I'm drinking out the bottle, hanging with supermodels, feel like I hit the lotto. I don't know about you, but I feel good. And I didn't even have to look at my sheet to say that because I know those words so stinking well from watching Suns games. Um, It's stuck in my head. And this commercial, it's capturing this vision of the good life, where your troubles are washed away with a a delicious, strong beverage, where you uh, become flawlessly beautiful. It's amazing, even as you're watching the commercial, there's all these beautiful people. But something happens within you when you're watching it is you don't imagine yourself laying on your couch with like chip crumbs all over yourself, watching the game. No, 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 no. You imagine yourself as one of them. You're one of the, one of the beautiful people. You're one of the supermodels in the casino. Um, you know, feeling like you've hit the lotto, that you're just throwing in a quarter and thousands are coming out. And all of a sudden, life is good. And that, that commercial, um, it plays over and over. And I guarantee you it's working. Um, 
I guarantee that it's working because this casino is huge and they've got an arena. They are doing very, very well. Um, I, I don't like casinos. I don't know anything about the casinos in Phoenix, but this one I remember. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that these commercials work? It means that people like me want relief from our troubles. We want lives that are restored to our ideals. We desire relief and restoration. That's why the commercial works. It taps into our human desires. But the question is, does it deliver on its promise? Um, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people, and I've never heard one say this, this phrase, you know, my life was miserable, and then I started gambling. And ever since then, it's been great. Never heard it. Um, but I was in a small group at a church with a very successful man who came, became addicted to gambling, almost lost his family. Um, I had a pastor mentor of mine that got sucked into gambling and to you know, get, get away from the difficulty of being a pastor, and he lost almost his entire retirement for he and his wife. We desire relief and restoration, but it's important to ask, is our method of achieving it leading to that, or is it a ploy, a mirage, a death trap? And that's where we find the world in the days of Noah. It's not so different from ourselves. People wanted their troubles to be relieved. How, how do you wash your troubles away? Think about that. How do you wash your troubles away? Last week, we talked about trust in the lives of Adam and Eve, and God made them a promise um, at the end, after they had fallen uh, from, from their state of innocence, uh, he gave them a promise, and they trusted in that promise, but they were wrong. We talked about misplaced hope, in a sense, that they were wrong, but by God's grace, they trusted again um, in faith, despite their trust issues that they now had from having missed God's pro- promise to them. And we said that the object of our faith is what's most important, not the quality of it. God still saves us. It's the object of our faith, God himself, Jesus Christ, that is of most importance, not the quality of our faith, even when we get things wrong. Uh, Genesis then records the generations between Adam and Noah. When Noah was born, we hear this longing from his father. It's what Garrett read at the beginning, that the curse on the world would lift and that they would be relieved. And, And the name that Noah is given is, um, is something in the, in the neighborhood of rest, relief. His word, the word Noah, the name Noah, means something like peace and rest. There's a hope that people would be relieved of their burdens. And then there's Genesis 6, which describes some familiar things that actually came just before what we read. And that was that in the world, in the earth, there were people were chasing after, actually it says men of God were chasing after attractive women. There's this confusing sh- uh, section in the Bible about the Nephilim. If you want to go down a real nice rabbit hole, you can go check that out. But at the end of the day, it's talking about this mighty group of people that were almost like gods in their eyes, that they began to worship. And then God assesses the world and the people on it and said they'd become so persistently wicked that he was grieved at the sight of them, which is a big statement because people had been made in the image of God. And it begs this question, what has led to this level of wickedness? And what do we make of this declaration of faith 
that Noah's father had and this, and this next move from God, this flood of the earth, um, what, are we, what is our, our narrator in the book of Genesis trying to show to us? And I want to walk through a few things here, what we want, what's required, and who we need, okay? So we want relief. The, no, the Noah story is framed with a clue uh, that, that I just referenced. This is the reason for the wickedness in the world, and there's a clue to it. When Lamech, Noah's dad, had lived 182 years, it says he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Out of the ground the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. Why begin the story this way? Because people in the world were tired and worn down by the curse that was over their lives. This was not just Noah's father. This is kind of the culmination of all the wickedness is this one man cries out and says, we want relief. And he's hoping his son will be the one that that brings it to them. If you notice, Lamech didn't reference the bad people of the world, the other political party, the riffraff. He referenced the earth itself, the hard work, the painful toil, or in other words, the inherent troubles of life. And we groan under these things to this day. Everyone seems to be seeking the job, the situation, the church, the friend group, the hobby that isn't so difficult, that allows for more freedom, that makes life happier and less painful. In other words, we want relief from the work and the toil of life, and we want good things instead. Now, work isn't just toil because it's hard to do. Um, And by work, I don't just mean paid labor. I mean the things that we do, the things that we create, the things that we maintain. We're all doing something almost all of the time. And it can be laborious in that it's difficult, but also in that it can feel futile or boring or unimportant. And all this leads to this weariness that we can feel that we want relief from. So how... Do you look for relief? What are your methods of finding relief? I guarantee you that they do not present entirely as evil things, right? Let's go through a few. An incredibly complex, well-crafted whiskey after a long day. An engaging game of basketball on TV. I already admitted to this one, right? A hilarious and somewhat informative reel on Instagram. Shopping, enjoying the outdoors, upgrading your driving experience, perhaps with a sports car or a new camping van, right? Upgrading your home or your design aesthetic, playing an incredibly designed game or spending a little extra time investing your money. Those aren't bad things, right, in and of themselves. I'm prying into all of our lives when I say that. I was thinking about my friends, me, when I mentioned these things, right? They're all good things, just like the beautiful architecture of the casino, right? And like having money, good things. But you'll notice all these good things can become our idols. What is an idol? The best definition of an idol would be a good thing that has been promoted in our lives to being an ultimate thing. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves worshiping. Now, what's worshiped at the casino? I want to show you their billboards. 
What do you think is worshipped here? Swipe the key to the kingdom. That's a card for, you know, using the machines. But what's the slogan? You do you. What's the idol of the casino? Is it just money? Uh, I think it's ourselves. All of life is worship, and the, the marketers behind that casino understand that, that all of life is worship. They, they know what, what to use to get you thinking, you know what? I do need to do something for me. So what's most valuable to you? Look at your bank balance sheet, your calendar, what you do in a moment of downtime. What do you think about? What do you find yourself when your mind drifts off? What are you thinking about? All those are hints at what we worship. So we people in Noah's time and now, we want relief. Um, That's how the whole narrative opens. And so we seek it, we chase it. And sadly in that quest, we turn good things into idols and thereby we corrupt good things. Have you ever noticed how that works? Say you love that warm and calm feeling you get after taking a nice pilsner down on on an evening. You, You love it so much that you begin to have to have it. It can begin to rule your life and the good thing becomes corrupted. Or you love, like I do, to peruse a thrift store. It's fun. It kind of gets you thinking like, oh, what was, what's the story of that? What could I use that for? I could refurbish that. You love eating delicious food and going out to local restaurants. These are good things. And then you have a bad week and you feel within yourself, I deserve a shopping trip. Or you know what? If I just had a nice meal, that would, that would make me feel better. You go down the list of the leisure time, camping, trip, tech time, all these things, and, and every once in a while, if somebody loves you enough, they'll say, this is kind of becoming a problem. See, it's getting corrupted. Now, religious folks like me can often make a mistake and we blame the thing itself. We could say it's sports, right? It's alcohol, it's gambling, the list goes on. But the trouble is, whatever you turn to will get corrupted as well. We can idolize healthy living. We can idolize being religious. We have to get under this and ask, why? Why do I want this right now? Why do I feel the need for it? Why do I have to have a vacation? Why do I have to smoke something? Why do I have to grab my phone right now? Why must I go out to eat? Why must I be noticed? And if you find yourself irritated when people ask such questions, maybe you even say they're Pharisee types that ask those questions. When you find yourself so upset, you might be idolizing something. We want relief from the pain, the toil, and the curse, and we run to things that we love. We begin to worship things that were not designed to be worshipped, and when we worship a created thing, we idolize it, and at the core of all this, we idolize ourselves. So what is required in this case? In the Noah story, the camera pans to God's perspective. He sees the earth, and all flesh has corrupted their way upon the earth, he says. And you notice that this worship of created things has actually impacted the earth itself. God doesn't just say, like, everything that was on the earth. It's actually impacted the very earth. 
And not only does God declare the need to destroy guilty people, but he says he needs to destroy the earth itself because it's become littered with idols. The stones, the mountains, the trees are all idols now. It's become like a satanic temple because we have idolized the things. Uh, John Muir, who is behind a lot of the national park movements in our country, loved Yosemite, and he called it a temple, and he was right. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but it is God's temple when we see it and we look above all those things to the God who created them. But when we worship the created things, it becomes the temple of Athens, where somebody like the Apostle Paul has to stand and again declare the unknown God. And God determines when he sees this, I must bring justice. I must cleanse the earth of its idols. I just read David Yetman's uh, book on Sonora. There's actually a copy back there on the shelf because I was thinking about our trip to Puerto Penasco. And he talks about the impact of the idols, though he's not a Christian. But he talks about the money and the drugs and needing to get the new trucks and needing to feel relief and leisure in the Tecate cans, or even the old mezcal isn't enough. It's got to be new and American and like what's seen on TV. And he observed that in this quest for, for affluence that some of the cities had actually decimated the small towns. In fact, they'd build dams um, to, uh, to irrigate and to, uh, and to make money that had flooded out some of the small towns. And I learned something in that book about floods. He visited a town that had been flooded. Um, and he said, the floods kill everything but the grass. Even the trees and the flowers die and they won't come back. The floods can carve out an entire mountain as well as the human infrastructure. He saw, he saw a church which was one of the last remnants sticking up out of a man-made lake that was just being eaten away by the floodwaters, right? So what's going on in our text is something like this, except it's at God's hand. God is looking down and saying, you desire relief, but you don't realize what that requires. You desire relief from the futility and the toil, but the problem is so baked in, it requires total cleansing. The floodwaters will come and everything is going to be taken out. The idolized things, the corrupting cause of those things, including the people. Just like in Mexico, the floods are a consequence of the idolatry, but they also, in God's mind, are a necessity. The, to rid the earth of the problem, the idols need to come down. Every tree, every hillside, every town, every monument that we worship because we idolize these things. And there's only one way to be saved. It's repentance. The call to the ark is a call to repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is a word for changing your mind and therefore changing the direction that you walk. So when there's something that you, you view in your life that is very important and you're walking that way and you change your mind that something else should be important, you actually turn your entire life that direction and move toward it. That's what the word repentance means. The ark is a call to trust God's appraisal of things and God's method of being saved from the toil and trouble rather than our methods of being saved from the toil and trouble. 
To come into the ark quite literally meant walking away from everything you were seeking to give you relief and to trust in something that God was providing to give you the relief that you really need. I don't think we realize how profound this is. It's not just that Noah made a big boat and the people were like, that's a silly boat, you are weird. There was probably some of that. But to get into that boat meant to walk away from your lifestyle, your home on the hillside, your city, your vices, every single thing you did for leisure and pleasure and enjoyment. It meant to turn from those things and turn to something that God said would save you, from idols to an ark. If you read the whole narrative, there are all these instructions on how to build the ark. Why? Why is it so important that we know the type of wood and all the measurements? It's important because it needs to be clear to us that it is a God-designed method of salvation. It's delivered entirely from God at perfect specification. The next thing in the Bible that will be similar to it will be the tabernacle and then the temple. And then in the book of Hebrews, Jesus's life will be compared to the temple to show how he kept every single one of its provisions. Essentially, when God is designing a way of trusting him, he signals it to us by showing us all the details so that we understand that we are trusting in something that's of God and not of ourselves. The problem becomes for God to do what, what is required to bring relief from the curse, there has to be a total cleansing. He has to bring justice. He has to do, it, do away with the idols and their craftsmen, which is us. And that's what he did in the days of Noah. He warned them. He called them to trust in the provision of his grace, in this case, a massive boat, and he cleanses the earth, which, by the way, doesn't have to mean the entire planet. There's a scientific problem out there with an entire planet being covered with water. It'd go out of orbit. He floods the known world. That's all you need to know. So God hears the desires of the people to find relief. He observes the way the earth itself has been corrupted and he does what his righteousness and holiness requires. He executes judgment on the earth and he cleanses it. And there's one way to be saved, the way that he provided for them. Now, I want to I address a complaint that... that for some of us Christians, we've heard, and if you're still thinking about faith, it's one you might have in your heart. And that is, why is God always so exclusive? Why are the, the ways to be saved so exclusive? In our day, this is the common complaint about the cross of Jesus Christ, that to require one to, go, to, to come to God through Jesus is too restrictive, it's too exclusive. And the Noah story, it's the same situation framed differently. We want relief and justice, but there's this core cause of a curse and injustice, this injustice that is within each one of us. We make idols. We corrupt the earth. You don't have to be religious to see that that's true. But the problem comes when God says there is one ark. I have to ask this. If you ran, let's, let's stick on the theme of the earth and corrupting the earth. If you ran an environmental care agency... You were trying to save, save the planet, perhaps from greenhouse gases or something like that. Um, would you allow unrepentant people to be members? Like the oil tycoon who makes money on the back of others says, I want to do it. I want to be in there. And you go, no, you, you corrupt the earth. And he goes, 
yeah, but I, I don't want to be viewed that way. I'd like to be in the organization. Would you let him? What about somebody that like drove down the highway and just threw all their fast food wrappers out the windows? And they said, hey, I'd like to be in the, uh, I'd like to be in your environmental club. Would you have me? He said, I see you, you throw everything. Yeah, 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 I know. Why are you so judgmental? That, that, there's a problem, right? You would not do that. You'd say, no, 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 no. Repentance is necessary. If you were fighting racism, would you invite a racist to lead? If you're fighting abuse, would you invite abusers to, you know, lead the organization while they actively abuse? You would not. You'd say, no, 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 no. You have to repent. You, ha you can't do this and do that. You have to turn from the one to the other. No, nobody in this world is inclusive. No organization is. It's not on the table. Think about it another way. You or someone you love has terminal cancer, and the doctor says there's one treatment that will save you. And do you say, I'm struggling with the exclusivity of this cure? No. You'd be grateful that there was an option at all. That's the arc of God. You, you can call it exclusive, but there's no truly inclusive system. Every system is exclusive to some degree. What this is, is it's God providing a way. We should be grateful that there's a way at all. There's a call to repent, and if we're clear-headed and honest with ourselves, we need to look at it and say, thank you. Noah, in this story, his greatest act is being willing to, to accept what God's provided for him. He's not, he's not a hero. He just receives what God has provided for him. So that gets us to our last point, who we need. Um, Noah's not a hero. We need somebody greater than Noah. The story ends with Noah opening the ark. He discovers the water, waters are receding. The wildlife can live on the renewed earth. But there are several clues here that the problem is not solved at all. First of all, Noah takes some of the very animals that has, have been saved on the ark, and he builds an altar, and he slaughters them. And he offers a sacrifice. What does that mean? These are guilt offerings. In Scripture, these are guilt offerings. Though he did repent and receive God's grace, he's not righteous, nor is his family. Innocent blood still has to be shed for him to be acceptable to God. And then God restates the great commission he's given to man mankind to be fruitful and rule the earth. Um, but he gives them a more detailed law than he ever had before about the lifeblood of the animals and the lifeblood of other human beings. He says, you are not to kill one another. For those who kill, their life will be demanded of them. If you remember last week, Adam and Eve did not trust God as they should have, though they were able to live face to face with him in his presence. And outside of his presence, things spiraled out of control, but God promised that a son would save them. They believed their son Cain, their first child, was the one who would save them, but they were disappointed because he didn't save them. No, he turned and he killed his brother, Abel. And God judged him for that, as we judge people who kill today. When God looked at the earth in Noah's day, it was worse. The killing, the decimation of the image of God, the idolizing of the created things and not the creator. So he bent his bow of justice down at people and said, you cannot kill one another. I will require a payment. 
Because our sins violated his creational intent and design, and we people are made in the image of God, so he takes our lives seriously. So Noah gets off the boat and immediately has to make a sacrifice for his guilt, and he's commanded not to kill. Things still aren't right. Noah was named by his dad out of a desire for a relief from the curse and hoping that he was a savior, the savior son that they were hoping for. And he did trust God and he repented and he got on the boat, but it wasn't enough. In fact, if you read beyond what I made Garrett read and, you know, by mercy, we didn't go any further. But if you read beyond that, he goes out to do what God commanded them to do, to develop out the earth and he plants some grapes and he learns how to ferment and he makes some delicious wine, and he gets drunk as a skunk and is found naked in his house, and his son comes in and points out his shame and dishonors him. Even Noah has made an idol out of the products of the renewed earth immediately. And what does God do? He puts a curse on his son. It's like Adam and Eve all over again. Noah's another failed savior. He received grace, but he failed again. He deserves justice again. It's a signal that the problem isn't solved. And that's what's so profound about this rainbow. Um, we have to take a second to clear our minds of all rainbow baggage, okay? So we're going to have a rainbow decluttering session. Um, get rid of all Cabbage Patch dolls, the Decolores rooster, any political ca cause, the rainbow bridge for pets, just got to move all those out. If you haven't heard of these, you're good. Okay, no more rainbows. In your, okay, okay. If you were an ancient hunter-gatherer and you saw an arc, an arched bow of light, what item in your life would it correspond to? We know the answer because the word in Hebrew is the word for the bow and arrow, for the weapon. After the great rains, when the sun reflected on the, mist, on the mist and they saw the spectacle that we call the rainbow, God infused it with new meaning. He said, you experienced my justice like a warrior coming down like arrows from above, but never again will I bring justice in this way. In the future, the justice will be aimed up. It will be aimed at the heavens. Now this begs the question, why does... Why does the Bible keep telling us about failed leaders? Adam and Eve, Noah, we're just barely cracking into the Bible and it's not looking very hopeful, is it, right? Well, the Bible is unique from any, from any other ancient religious text in that it does not give you heroes, it gives you people of faith. And it shows us how they fail because we would idolize people as much as we idolize anything in creation. And God isn't trying to give us a hero. God is pointing us beyond ourselves. He's pointing us to himself. That's what the rainbow's for. What does it mean for God's war bow to be pointed up? It means the son who's been promised, who would be, who would bru be bruised by the serpent, but would crush his head out of Genesis. Um, the way that he would save us would be by absorbing the justice of God that we deserve. And to do that, it must not be one of us. It must be the son of God. And what does this mean? Many things, but most pertinent tonight, our desire for relief and restoration must rest on God's design. And ultimately, God has designed that Jesus would be the ultimate ark in God's redemptive plan. We can trust him to carry us 
through the judgment to the renewal of all things. If we have such a hope, we can live lives of repentance and lives of repentance witness to what we trust in. Now, I do mean things like repenting from dark sins, like maybe you, you know, lie to your spouse and you really should cut it out. Um, and, you know, maybe you, you like, you know, speed and give people the middle finger. And yes, you really shouldn't do that. Um, but repentance goes far deeper than that. It, it becomes an entire lifestyle. I mentioned uh, that book, David Yetman's Sonora, earlier, and in the end, in his later years, he confessed that he did not enjoy visiting Sonora, Mexico anymore. Um, again, I mentioned he was not a Christian, but he was describing the impact of the idols, that the, the drugs and the money and all these things, the litter that was everywhere, feeling unsafe, and he said it was just sad to see these beautiful places that had been destroyed. Um, but as we'll remember when some of us drive down there in April, that though that is true, and you can see the evidence of that, it is still full of people that bear the image of God. We can't just give up on whole nations because of idolatry, right? We can't give up on the political ramifications of our decisions on the poor just because it's hard to look at, right? Justice and our faith demand that we don't. The good news that we believe has to become actions in the world. Faith and good works must always be linked together, says the book of James. So how do we hold this intention and do the hard work of love and justice when things just feel like broken. We need a deep trust in the ability of God to break the curse, a trust that, you know, the things that might be consequences aren't outside of God's redemptive plan. Just like the flood that's a, that's a consequence of what people did was actually used by God to cleanse the earth and bring restoration, that God can do such things again. And such faith can lead us to the long, difficult, patient work that can only be done with God's help. And that is engaging the idols of our time that impact our community and our world. And there are millions of them. It can help us to invest in the little things and the slow work that needs to be done to witness to the kingdom of God on this earth and actually to give people a taste because we trust in a God that has a greater plan and purpose. Without such trust, we will check out and our witness will falter just like Noah, who right after receiving the new earth just goes right back to his idolatry. This should not be the story of people who know Christ. Jared and I had a little surprise tutorial of this on Friday morning. We were uh, taking a walk and we walked over the new downtown links bridge we thought that'd be pretty cool because there was no traffic. As we came over the crest of the bridge, we saw these tents with people in it. We're like, oh, what's going on down there? It looks like a press conference. And then we realized we were the two goobers walking across the bridge on TV. So if you saw the press conference on TV, we're just like, hit the day, walking down. And, um, you know, looking like we own the place. And um, as we did that, uh, there was a guy speaking who I recognized because he goes to, a, goes to a church here in town. And I didn't, know, I didn't know this story, but he's, he's a believer. He does a lot of work in things like historical preservation and stuff like that. 
And he was telling the story of the Downtown Links project and how it's changed. And is it's not perfect. Um, there are many critiques of this project, and I'm not trying to clear that up. I'm just trying to say it sounds like from his report, it was going to be really bad. As in, it was going to like cut out huge swaths of downtown, kind of kill downtown. This was a plan that was in the 80s. And it got reworked by citizens' committees to where it worked better, it saved businesses, it was better for the city of Tucson, better for commerce. And here's a believer who said, I was on the citizens' committee starting in the 80s, and here we are in 2023, and they did a way better job than they were going to do. And Jared and I are thinking, we're just catching part of this, but it's like, how cool that a Christian was committed for 40-some years to that project and gets to witness to it in front of city officials, right? I guarantee you he doesn't think that's the only important thing in regard to his faith. I guarantee you he believes that people should be, you know, believe in Jesus for their salvation. I know this because I know the type of church he goes to. They believe in all these things. But I also can guarantee he wouldn't have worked as hard as he did without some redemptive imagination that believed that God was at work in it all that somehow fighting for what was best for his city was a steadfast commitment to the day when there's a new heavens and new earth, when the repentance that we've done on earth actually translates into the kingdom of God. He had to believe that it mattered enough to stay committed. I think he was one of very few people who'd been on that journey the whole time. We can live lives of repentance, trusting in God when we have hope in God's promise of restoration. When we trust in the God who promises relief, who bears the curse of our idolatry on Christ's cross. So is this a call to community action? Maybe. Um, I think for some of us, there, there's all sorts of, you might be at a place where the, you know, the repentance in your life is just very very basic, where it's like, hey, right now I just need to stop doing something harmful. But maybe for some of us, there's a time to say, the truth is some of the idols of my heart have got me so wrapped up that I am not committed to the things that God is doing in this community. And there might be a call to re-engage into what's most important. The hint at the end of the Noah story was that the problem wasn't solved um, that the wine that he made could become an idol for him again. But when Jesus came to this earth, he promised us that he was greater than Noah. The one that we put our faith in is greater, and the promise is bigger. It's not only that a flood would restore the earth. In fact, God said he would never flood the earth again. He said next time when he returns, the earth will pass through the fire. And that sounds scary, but fire refines things perfectly. It doesn't just wash it purifies to the core. And what Jesus was saying is, when I return, I will finish the work that I've started in you and in in my people, and I will restore the earth as I promised. Jesus sat at the table with his disciples, and he took bread. Bread, of course, something that we've made to sustain ourselves, something that we often idolize, our food. But he said, I'm the bread of life. And this is a, this is a key scriptural reference all the way through. They, God provided bread to his people when they left Egypt. And he says, I am the bread that you need most of all. I'm the one behind all of the bread. He takes the wine from the table and wine is something we can so easily idolize. We can become addicted to, 
but also it's the wine of the feast, of the wedding. It's a beautiful thing. And he says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. And he said, someday I'll return. The next time I drink of this, I'm gonna drink it with you. It's the promise of a heavenly city that comes down to earth when God makes all things new. So this evening, the call is to receive Jesus Christ by faith. Um, I hope that you've seen that this story in the Bible of Noah is instructive for us and that by placing our faith in God, we can renounce idols that take us away from being a witness for, for the kingdom and we can follow Jesus again. So now I'm going to pray. Uh, there's going to be two minutes of silence for us and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper for all those who can say, um, I believe in Jesus and what he's done. I see the powerful way that he has fulfilled everything, even the, the stories of Genesis. Um, this is for you. If, you're, if you are new to faith and you're saying, I, I want to believe, I want to trust him, um, if you can, you can take it. If not, talk to one of us. We'd be happy to explain more and pray with you. After that, we're going to eat together. Why do we do that? Um, we believe that, honestly, having big Delicious meals together is one of the most beautiful pictures of the coming kingdom that we can experience. So we want you to hang out, uh, spend time with one another, and eat together. Uh, there's giving in the back. That's how we survive. Thank you for giving when you do. And uh, we just look forward to uh, sitting together after this. So would you pray with me? And then uh, we'll worship together and partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, uh, your word is so full of powerful imagery, powerful truths. Um, I know there was so much in there uh, this evening, but I pray that even as we think about the depths, the layers of meaning in this story of Noah, that it would become more profound and applicable to us. I pray that we'd live lives of repentance where we invest in our, in our neighborhoods, our communities, our friendships, our families, where we would prioritize you over all created things and cast our idols down and worship you. I pray that we would be comforted in the fact that your plan is good and you know how to save us and that you've designed a way. I pray that we would, we would be willing to walk away from our idols and to trust in you. You don't only provide us a boat, you've provided us a person, one greater than Noah, Jesus Christ. So help us to honor him, receive him by faith, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.